Now, how many of you have seen those two videos? Okay, there's a few that haven't. Now, that Charlie Bentney video has been shown 898 million times on YouTube. So if you haven't seen that video, you're probably in the rarity because, well, almost a billion people across the world have seen it, which is absolutely astounding to me. And that's what they're called viral videos, right? You watch it, you think it's hilarious, and then getting a little feedback, I think, a little, little groan. Um, and, uh, and then you say, oh, you know, honey, babe, you know, your best friend at work, you got to watch this. You got to see it. It's absolutely hilarious. I couldn't stop laughing. It was so funny. And then you sit down in a computer together and you watch it again. And then you watch it again. And then you watch it again. And the next thing you know, there are almost 900 million views of Charlie bit me. That's a crazy number. But that's what happens when things go viral. And we get that term, you know, viral videos from a virus. And we all understand if you've been a part of a family, you get it, right? Um, you know, somebody gets the flu, and then, especially if you have kids, and then it passes on to another member of the family, and it passes on to another member of the family, and then you start quarantining, and people are sleeping on couches and in living rooms and outside. It's like, look, we got to do something to kill this. It can't keep happening. You know, that's the whole virus mentality and then you go to work and you sneeze on somebody and then they get it and the next person gets it and it spreads everywhere we get that we understand but what happens when your faith goes viral what happens when you become like the early church and you become missional and you realize um, that, that our faith what they realized that their faith was one generation from ceasing to exist it was either for the early followers of jesus um, for those, for the people that were living in Acts, that they either shared what God had shown them and what God had done in their lives, or they didn't. And if they didn't, it would have been over. Those disciples, those apostles, those early people that followed Jesus, it, that would have been the end of the church. But they did. And if you read the story of Acts, you know, throughout Acts, you see the church spreading. You see the church not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea, and Samaria, and Asia, and uh, you know, Europe, just spreading throughout the world because it went viral. And that's what we're talking about today, how our story, how our lives can become viral, how they can spread and make a difference in this world. So if you want to, you can grab your bulletin and grab the notes outside of it and follow along with me, or you can read up on the screen. We're going to pick up the believers in Acts chapter 2 at the end of it. We're going to see how this story became viral. This is what it says. It says, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to the number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. If you have a pen, I want you to underline these next few words. And it says, all the believers. It says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. 
selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone he, he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. So, what does it look like? What does it take from us for our faith to go viral as a church? And the first thing I want you to follow on your notes with, you can write this down, is that our faith grows viral when faith promotion becomes personal. When faith promotion becomes personal. Now, I don't know if we have any action movie buffs out there. Um, for me, I, I love great action movies. And one of my favorite, blah, what are you talking about? One of my favorite action guys to watch is Mel Gibson. Do we have any Mel Gibson action movie fans? There's a couple. That's good. I'm not alone. One of my all-time favorite Mel Gibson movies, there's two of them, is The Patriot and Braveheart. Now, literally, I saw Braveheart, which is about a three-hour movie, about 15 times in the movie theater with all my buddies in my high school and college. It was just like, that's how much I absolutely loved this movie. But the movie, The Patriot, Mel Gibson plays this guy by the name of Benjamin Martin. Benjamin Martin is, a, is widowed, um, his, his wife has passed away, he has kids, and, and his only goal is to just to be a dad and to take care of his family. And the movie's set, you know, during the American Revolution, and, and he has all these men coming up to him, and his, even his own children saying, Dad, you know, we got to stand up, Dad, we got to fight, God, Dad, we have to be a free country, you know, Dad, why aren't you doing anything? But Benjamin just continues to say, you know, we're not, I'm not here to fight. I just want to be a dad. I just want to take care of my kids. You know, you, know, you need to go talk to somebody else. And then one day, the Redcoats come to his family, and to his farm. Anybody remember this in the movie? And they stand there you know, in front of Benjamin Martin, and uh, his kid gets a little mouthy with the, with the, the man in charge up on his horse, and, and, the, and he pulls out his sword, I think, and he, and he stabs him, and he kills him, or he shoots him, one of the two. And in that moment... In that moment, this war became what? Personal. And it's like they woke the big bad wolf that was inside of Benjamin Martin, and, and, and he began to, to work with the revolutionaries, and, and he began to teach them how to fight. And, and he was like, in the movie, he was like the driving force that, that drove Britain out of the country, that continued to win battle after battle after battle. But that happened when it became personal. In Braveheart, you know, the same character played by Mel Gibson, William Wallace, just wants to be left alone, just wants to raise a family, just wants to get married and have kids and, and take care of them and settle, you know, somewhere in Scotland on these little acreage and, and just be a husband and a dad. And then all of a sudden, the, the, the person in charge of his district kills his wife. And it became personal. And when it became personal, everything changed. You know, it's not so much different with our faith and sharing it. When it becomes powerful or becomes personal, something powerful takes over. Something powerful happens when we make faith promotion and sharing our faith personal. When we realize that sharing our faith isn't really the job of the pastor or a program that we start at church, or, you know, it isn't the job of the children's leader or the worship pastor. But when we realize that sharing our faith is something for me that God has asked all believers to be a part of, something powerful takes place when it becomes 
personal. Now, what does it mean for it to be personal? Well, it happens when you feel a personal responsibility. It happens when you feel a personal responsibility. Psychologists called it um, bystander, bystander apathy. Have any of you ever heard that term before? It, it was explained, and I was reading online. Um, there was, uh, in, on March 13, 1964, a woman by the name of Kitty Genovese was married, or was murdered, excuse me, in front of her home. Yeah, that's, some people would say that's kind of the same thing. Um, just kidding, babe. I don't mean that. I said some people, not me. Yeah, no, not at all. Yeah, she said Freudian slip. Whoops. Um, she was murdered, let me get that right, in front of her home. Now listen to this. She parked her car a number of feet from her apartment when all of a sudden a man named Winston Mosley chased her down and stabbed her in the back twice. This is a little graphic, but I want you to hear what happens. Due to the excruciating pain, Kitty screamed for help, and a neighbor responded, shouting out to the criminal, let that girl alone. Immediately after getting the attention of the criminal, Winston fled the scene and left the girl crawling towards her apartment. Now listen what happens. Several witnesses reported to have seen Winston fled the scene with his car and returned 10 minutes later after the response of one of the neighbors. After seeing his prey lying on the ground almost unconscious, he stabbed the already wounded Kitty Genevieve several times more. And after this, he stole the money of the victim and sexually assaulted her. And a neighbor phoned the police and an ambulance arrived but was too late to help the, 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 the assaulted Kitty. Now listen, do you hear what's happening? So a woman gets attacked and, and, and someone says, hey, leave her alone. And then he runs off, but nobody does anything to help. Nobody comes outside. Nobody calls an ambulance. Nobody calls, you know, the police. They, they just kind of just leave it all. And, and they say that, 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 that it was in front of her apartments and that, that everybody in the apartments heard what was going on. And so some, some psychologists said there, there has to be something happening here. So two psychologists, you know, d- did this research and, and did these, um, what is it called, um, these studies, these case studies, where, where they figured out that bystander ha- Apathy happens when, when you have a large group of people that hear something bad happening, they're less likely to do anything about it because they think somebody else will do something about it. And then they, heard, then they figured out that the reverse is true, that the fewer number of people that see something bad happening, the more likely they are to do something about it. So if there's a small group of people and they see something bad happening, there's more of a likelihood that somebody's going to say, hey, that's not okay, we've got to stop this, and they'll run up to help. But if there's a large group of people, they'll say, well, that's somebody else's job. Somebody else is going to take care of it. I believe that someone else is going to help that person, and so they do nothing. They don't feel a personal responsibility. What about our faith? Do we approach that the same way when we think about our neighbors, our loved ones, those that are far from God? Do we get bystander apathy and think, well, you know what? That's, somebody else will take care of that. Somebody else will speak up. Somebody else will speak into their life. Somebody else will love them. Somebody else. Because we see all of these Christians in this world, and we see all these people, and we see all these pastors, and we say, well, that's their job. Somebody else will do it. That's not what the scripture has in mind. 
you look at your text, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, who will be my witnesses? You. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Reaching the community isn't just for the church. It's for me, and it's for you. It's not about programs. It's about people. You see, nobody can reach your family and your neighbors like you can. Nobody. So your faith becomes viral when you begin to accept a personal responsibility, when you realize that that God has called me to be his witness. God has called me to share his love. God has called me to be his voice. So it's a personal responsibility. Here's a second thought. It's not always a personal responsibility, but it's a personal story. It's about a personal story. This week I heard one of the most amazing sermons I've ever heard in my life by the gentleman called uh, E.V. Hill, who's since long been with the Lord. And I was listening to it online. It's a message called When God Was at His Best. And in this message, he goes through just from the very beginning. And he, and he asks this audience of pastors, he says, he says when, when was God, he was preaching at, at Moody Bible Institute at a, at, a, at, a, at a gathering of pastors who were there to learn and to study. He says, when was God at his best? Was God at his best in creation? On Genesis 1, verse 1, when he spoke into existence the world and, and light burst forth and, and plants shot up and animals existed just like that and he carved out the, mo- or the mountains and the oceans and he spoke forth you know, the great waters. Is, is that when God was at his best? He said, I think not. He says, was God at his best? When he, when he knelt down and he, and he grabbed that mud and he, and he formed man. And then he breathed his life, his Holy Spirit into him, the very essence of life. And, and, the, and the mud cracked and, and became flesh. And then he realized that man was alone and so he took a rib and he made woman. He said, he says, is, is that when God was at his best? He said, no, I really don't think so. I think not. He said, well, well, was God at his best when, when the Israelites were captive in, in Egypt? He said, now, now God did some amazing things that day. And he, and he called forth locusts and, and boils, you know, on the, on the Egyptians. And he, and he, and he brought frogs, you know, um, you know, out from the river that were hopping in their beds and all over the kingdom. He made lice so numerous it was more than the grains of sand. Yeah, that makes you go, Ugh. Was that when God was at his best? When he led the people who were set free out of captivity with a, with a pillar of fire by night and a, and, a, and a pillar of clouds by day and, and he brought them up to that Red Sea and you know, Moses you know, put out a staff and the waters parted and they walked across dry land. Was, was that when God was at his best? He said, I don't think so. Well, was God at his best? When those same Israelites shouted down the walls of Jericho? I think not. And then he said, well, you know, I could preach all day going through the Old Testament, but let's just skip to the good stuff. He said, but what about that day 
when Mary gave birth to God in flesh. And all of the angels stood in wonder and and saw the very essence and presence of God wrapped in flesh and, and placed in a manger. Was that when God was at his best? And he said, now that was a good day. But it wasn't his best day. So he said, let's skip through the life of Jesus and let's, let's start that last day of Jesus when he hung on the cross and he took on sin on his shoulders and he carried it into the grave and went to hell and defeated the enemy. And then three days later, the grave was ripped open and the Son of Man walked out alive brought to life by the power of God for the forgiveness of our sins he breathed life once again was that when God was at his best and he said now look I don't understand all of that I'm just a I'm just an old preacher but is that when God was at his best he said no I don't think that's when God was at his best but see because I can't understand that I can't even believe what God did there But I believe when God was at his best was when he met me when I was 12 years old in sweet home Texas, a little African-American boy falling on his knees in the middle of a dirt street and saying, Lord Jesus, save me. And somehow in that moment, God redeemed my soul. He rescued me from sin. He made me whole. And that was when God was at his best. Because I know the man I used to be, and I now know who God made me to be, and that's when God transformed my life. That's when God was at his best. And can I say to you this morning, this is me talking, not Evie Hill, that that's when God was at his best in your life. When you became a personal follower of Jesus, when he rescued your soul, when he rescued you from sin, when he saved your life, that that was when God was at his best for you. Now, understanding theology, it's a good thing. Being able to tell someone about the saving grace of Jesus and what he did on that cross That makes all the difference in the world. But what people really want to hear is what God has done for you. Your story. Your experience. What your life was like before and after you came to know Jesus. That's when God was at his best. And that's what people need to hear. If you look at the scripture... Jesus has just done a miracle for a man in Mark chapter 5, verse 19. And this is what he tells him. He says, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. He says, this is what I want from you. I want you to go home and I want you to reveal your story, how God has changed your life, how your life has been redeemed by your Savior, That's what people need to hear. Because that leads them to Him. How God has changed you leads them to the Savior. 
You see, it's a personal responsibility, and it's a personal story. And it also happens when we give a personal invitation. You see, I love getting invitations. At Christmas time, man, that's when I get an invitation in the mail for a party or for a Christmas party or a Halloween party. You know, I'm, I'm sure the, the Henry and Karen are going to be gearing up for the parties at their house. I mean, I love that stuff. I love giving invitations. Who doesn't like to receive an invitation in the mail? It's amazing, right? You think, you know, that somebody has thought of me. Somebody believes in me. Somebody wants to spend time with me. But that's how people feel when we give an invitation to be a part of our lives. When we give an invitation to be a part of our church. See, one of the things that I've learned is that one of our greatest fears is to talk to, talk to people about you know, Jesus and to talk to people about church and, and to invite them to be a part of something. But one of the things that I've personally discovered is that, is that people usually say yes when you invite them. That people usually aren't angry. And people usually don't throw their coffee in your face and people don't you know, want to run you off the road or punch you in the mouth. That's not what happens when you say, hey, you want to come, come to church with me on Sunday? Come be a part of what's happening in my life. I just wanted to introduce you to some of my friends and something that's made a difference in my life. It's about a personal invitation. John 1, 41 and 42 says, The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and to tell him, We have found a Messiah. That is the Christ. And this is what it says, And he brought him to Jesus. He brought him. He said, I found the guy. I've experienced what he did in my life, and I want you to come check it out. You've got to see this guy. You've got to, he knows about me and our lives, and, and he has the answers. He is the Messiah. Come, see, experience it. It's about a personal invitation. You see, our faith goes viral when it becomes personal, when we realize it, and we're supposed to be in on this. Here's a second thought. Is that our lives, that, that our faith goes viral when our lives become irresistibly attractive. And what I mean by that is this. What was it about Jesus that pulled people to him? What was it about Jesus that made him so attractive? Hey, he was the son of God. Yes, that probably had a big part to do with it, right? He performed miracles. He fed them. You know, that, that's probably part of why he was so attractive. But, but he wasn't, you know, a good-looking guy. You know, Scripture says that he was, you know, humble in his looks. I mean, he was just an average-looking Jew, right? He was just, just one of the people. But people flocked to be near him. The Scripture says that children, you know, just wanted to be close to him and jump up in his lap. What, what would be about a man that would cause people to want to be so close? The Scripture says that prostitutes would fall down before him and and clean his feet with their tears and, and wipe it away and pour the most expensive perfume. I mean, who would do that? Why? What about him was so attractive? There's something different about that guy. And here's the thing. That guy lives in us. If we're followers of Jesus... We have that same spirit, that same life, that same love, and that same power living within us. What if we began to live with that same irresistible attractiveness 
that Jesus did. Doing good. Christians. Loving their neighbors. Christians. Hugging children. Well, I mean, children they know. I mean, that would be a little creepy if they just started grabbing kids and hugging them. But what if? You see, Christians can be known as as some of the most grumpy and unattractive negative people. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. It says, You're the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a blanket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. Listen to this. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. The scripture says that Jesus is asking us just to live our lives openly, to invite people in to fellowship with us, and to live in such an attractive way that other people say, I want to be a part of what you have. Doing good, giving, serving, sharing, and being generous with our lives. I have a lot of friends in high school and college and just over the years that that have been waiters. Um, and, and they all say that their least favorite time to, to be a waiter is on Sunday afternoon. And it's so sad, but it's so true. And I, I said, Eric, uh, my, my cousin Eric, who's a pastor now, was, was a waiter in college. And I, I said, Eric, why do you feel that way? Why do you hate Sunday afternoons? And he just says, because Christians are terrible tippers. They're terrible tippers. They come from church and they don't tip well. And he said, I am a Christian. I don't want to work Sunday afternoons because Christians are terrible tippers. I don't know why that is. But we should be exactly the opposite. We should be generous and giving and loving and serving people. What does it mean to be attractive to your neighbors? What does it mean to be attractive to your coworkers, to your employees? You see, our faith goes viral when people want what you have. Our faith goes viral when they see our lives and they say, whatever's happening in that person, I want to be a part of that too. I want to experience the life that they have. What? Tell me, how does this happen? How have you attained this? Why are you so peaceful when the rest of us are just throwing our hands up in the air? T- tell me. You see, people, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. People people don't care about your theology and the wisdom that you have until they know your heart, the fact that you care about. You see, our faith goes viral when it becomes irresistibly attractive. And here's the last thought. Is that our faith goes viral when we're motivated with a sense of urgency. You see, it becomes urgent when it becomes personal. Jerome Moody died in September of 1985. He drowned surrounded by over 100 lifeguards in New Orleans, Louisiana, at a pool party. He was found afterwards as everybody was getting ready to leave, and he had been dead at the bottom of the pool for over 30 minutes. See, no one was paying attention. There were 100 lifeguards around that pool, at that party, but none of them were on duty. There was no sense of urgency. There was nobody looking out. There was nobody wondering, hey, where's Jerome? Is he okay? 
haven't seen them in a while. Somebody looks like they're struggling in a pool. Nobody even noticed. The scripture, Acts chapter 1, says they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, Jesus ascending into heaven, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus Who's been taking, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back. Will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. These two angels look at all the disciples and say, Guys, what are you doing standing here? Jesus is gone. And here's the thing is that he is coming back, and when he does, it's over. It's time. And the scripture says is that we don't know when that day is going to be. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be next week. It could be 50 years or 100 years or 1,000 years from now. I don't have the foggiest clue. The scripture doesn't tell us. But he is coming back. And there should be a sense of urgency because we don't know when that it could be tomorrow. See, there's a sense of urgency when we realize that our lives, that our family's lives, that the people that we love that are far from God, their lives are in danger. They're lost without our God. And whenever he comes back, if they don't know his grace, if they haven't accepted his forgiveness and mercy, there's only one place that they will go, and that's hell. You see, our faith goes viral when we're motivated by a sense of urgency, when we realize that something has to be done, love has to be shared, grace has to be shown, I've got to do something. And that doesn't mean we can save everybody by tomorrow, but that means that we can love somebody today, that we can do our part to share his grace and love with a fallen world. One of the greatest things I ever heard was just a reminder, not the greatest thing, but it's a powerful thing, that we aren't responsible for people's salvation. We can't force them to say yes, but we are responsible for our part, and that's sharing his love and his mercy and his grace. You see, our faith goes viral when it becomes personal when we realize that we're supposed to be in the game too. You see, our faith goes viral when we begin to accept responsibility, when we tell our story, when we invite people into this process, into this family, into this body, and we say, hey, I want you to experience what I'm experiencing. Our faith goes viral when our lives become attractive, when we allow Jesus to take control of our lives and our hearts, and we begin to live the way he asks us to being generous and loving and caring and and being honest and open and truthful. See, our lives become viral when it becomes urgent. When we realize that we don't have, we're not guaranteed next year. We're not even guaranteed an hour from now. So in this moment, we live for him. 